Welcome back to Energy Explained, our YouTube channel, our family YouTube channel, where we have a father and son team. So my mother joined for one as well. I'm Justin Rao. I sit out here in the Netherlands, and I'm joined by my father, Vikram Rao, as usual. Uh, Vikram is a, the former CTO of Halliburton. He has a PhD in engineering from Stanford. He speaks with authority on all matters energy. And typically, I interview him on a topic about energy. And today, we're going to flip the roles. He's going to interview me, so I'll kick it over to you, Dad. Right. Uh, so let me introduce Justin. Uh, he has a PhD in economics from the University of California, San Diego. So he's a, and he's a marketing executive in the Netherlands right now. So he's well qualified to speak on things and uh, economics. So, so I thought Justin that and just, I consider economics as the invisible hand behind everything we all do, including energy. Oops, I just realized that. <laughs> I'm using a jargon, economics jargon term from Adam Smith. Well, I didn't intend that. And yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm sure when he wrote it, he wouldn't realize it would be like the most famous thing ever. But, you know, we it, it gives the, the Invisible Hand logo, slogan gives the impression that markets have this magical quality, which they don't. A market is like a car. If you take care of it, it works well. If you don't, it won't work well. And it's important to keep that in mind. I guess we're going to talk about that today. Yes, we are. So last time you recollect that we were discussing when I was the one who was being interviewed, we discussed the debacle in Texas with the energy access being lost. Uh, and we discussed that what were the things behind it? What were the yeah. policy issues yeah. behind it? What were the economics issues behind it? And so we decided that maybe that was a good starting point for us to discuss the impact of economics and associated policy on energy. Yeah, I love uh, it. Yeah, so, so let's take it from there. And if you could just give us a quick in your take on a synopsis. Well, I can give a little bit what happened. We know what happened, yeah. which is that uh, uh, for roughly within two and five days, uh, uh, electricity dropped by like up to 50% or so. And there was a lot of blackouts. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of blame, blame throwing happened. But one of the places that was thrown was the issue of regulation on deregulation and do free markets work. So could you give a little bit of a take on that and then I can ask you more questions? So at a high level, you know, we know this can happen. So, you know, if again, using that car analogy, if your car breaks down, it may speak to using cars generally, but it probably more speaks to the maintenance you had on your specific car. And in this case, it's a similar story. So is deregulation bad or good? That's honestly somewhat of a ridiculous question all markets in some form or the other are regulated in the united states the exceptions are limited to very specific cases for example around religion in certain areas where the government strictly cannot get involved so first just accept things are regulated when you walk into a restaurant there's been a health inspection when you step on an elevator there has been a safety inspection you cannot operate a business in the United States without adhering to many regulations for the health and safety for those that interact with your business. Periods. So let me demystify that. Now you asked about this particular incident. Well, deregulation um, can be done well or poorly, and let's dig into that. But I would say from the outset, a consumer paying a ridiculous energy price is not a good outcome, and that would be an example of poor deregulation. So let's back up just one step for the listeners. Uh, which is, could you give us a just a lay explanation of how electricity markets work? 
Yeah, and 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 the, the the classic case, and this is how it all started in New York with Thomas Edison, is you have what's called vertical integration, and what that means is from the point of electricity production to the consumption at the household level, you are interacting with a single firm that produces, distributes, and charges you for electricity. That firm may depend on fuel sources coming to them, so they might not be integrated to the point of finding their own natural gas, right, which we talked about last time. But ultimately, in a classic regulated energy market, a single firm handles the whole end-to-end chain. In a deregulated market in the United States, there are two flavors. The first flavor is that um, the, the firm you buy energy from as a retail consumer can buy energy from a bunch of wholesale players in the market. So they don't need to be necessarily electricity producers. They can be more of a middle firm involved in buying wholesale and selling retail, which is how you buy a lot of stuff generally. That, that's, that's the market structure of most of the stuff you buy. Gasoline, stuff at the supermarket, that's the, that's the market structure, right? A wholesaler buys and then distributes to you in a convenient way. That's, that's, the, that's the classic uh, market structure. Now, that's, that's a deregulated electricity market. You also have what's called consumer retail choice, which extends that even further to say the consumer can, for instance, buy green energy. And what that means is they make a contract with a firm to put green energy on someone else's wires through someone else's distribution mechanism, but ultimately produce through green sources. And giving consumers that retail choice has been a driving uh, a factor in the adoption of green energy production. So give you a little flavor of how it works. Yeah, but so let me ask you an in-depth question on that point, on the last one. Uh, uh, I understand the aspect of green energy, pay a little bit more for yep. it, that's your choice. Yeah. Okay. But what about what happened in Texas where some folks uh, took a variable pricing scheme, okay? Uh, and so the question I have to ask you is that, uh, and let me go back to Richard Thaler who won the Nobel Prize for basically postulating that uh, I'm being I'm going to be very uneconomically brief, uh, is basically postulating that uh, people given choice don't necessarily make the best economic decisions for themselves, okay? Something to that effect. If, is that going on here? Does that apply here? Uh, does free choice of, of models, not green and not green, of, of models of how you get charged, uh, are consumers, uh, ready to make that choice? Do they know enough to make that choice? It's an, it's an interesting question. I, so I would start by, so the choice overload question is an interesting one we can delve into, but let's think a little bit about how prices work in a market and a really, really foundational level. The idea of price fluctuation in a consumer market is to create a supply response. Prices go up, greater incentive to produce, supply goes up. Now, in a general market, the time scale for this to happen can be pretty wide, right? So there is an interest in smartphones in 2007. More firms start, prices are very high. More firms start producing them. Now it's not only Apple, prices come down and the market works, right? But there has to be time for that supply response to happen. So let's think of a market that has a lower time for a response to happen, which you might be familiar with, which is ride hailing. So you're familiar with Uber, right? You use Uber. And Uber, when it launched, had this feature called surge pricing. The idea was that when there's too much demand for the supply, we raise the prices. Then drivers get on the road more. That creates a supply response, which allows more people to have rides. Now, let me ask you, if 
there was not the possibility for more drivers to get on the road, what do you think would happen with this mechanism? Do you think it would have the intended outcome? I see. So that's a very good analogy. So in Texas, there was not that possibility for more drivers. No. The gas just could not be delivered to Correct. the power station. So why do your economic models apply then? They don't. They simply don't. So let me give you, continue with the Uber example. Let's suppose a concert lets out and there's 500 people that need rides and there's only 100 cars. So if in the time that the people need to get home versus other alternatives, public transit, walking, whatever it may be, if there's not going to be a supply response, what surge pricing will do will just change who gets a ride. And who gets a ride will be the people that have more money, a higher willingness to pay. Now, you might like this or not, but you can't argue that it added, let's say, efficiency. Efficiency in this example is how many people get rides. Who gets them? That's a more of a moral issue. Let's not get into that one. Surge pricing will be a good idea if, let's say, we give the drivers advance notice. There is a concert tonight ending at 9 p.m. We expect prices to be 50% higher for drivers. That's an effective form of surge pricing, right? They know in advance. They can be there. Prices are, yes, higher, but more supply happens, more efficiency happens. To your point, in the electricity markets in Texas, Texas is on an independent grid from the rest of the country, which we talked about last time. So there's no possibility for power to get into the grid. It has to be produced within Texas. But Texas is where power cannot be produced because of the problems with the distribution of natural gas to the power plants. So the supply cannot come up. So if the price goes up, it just means consumers will pay more. No supply response. And that means it's not working. This just is not how dynamic prices are supposed to work. It's pointless. All it does is shift money from consumers to the energy companies. And that's not fair. It's not fair and it's not efficient. So, uh, so let's take the more normal situation. Let's say that the, uh, that the supply fluctuated, not as deeply as it did this time, but to some degree. And, and so the energy companies charged more uh, to produce it. And that's fair, you say, because that corrects it itself. It's an Uber type situation, right? right? Well, it, it, it's okay. in that situation, it, you know, it, if there can be a supply response, so a whole, uh, you know, someone that's running, for example, um, a power plant that can quickly do peak uh, uh, demand, like the, you know, they literally have jet engines that do this, or natural gas has the fluctuations, they can do something a little less efficiently, but still uh, efficient enough, and they get the power there. That's the system working supply meets demand. And we have to remember, in electricity markets, supply must meet demand 100% of the time at all times. And that creates some fragility at the edges. So yes, that's the system working. So, so let me ask you, I'm going to read to you what Senator Ted Cruz said. So I, 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 I'm, going to, I'm, I'm going to read because I want to be sure that I don't misquote the gentleman. Yeah. He said, this is in a tweet, uh, this is wrong, and the wrong is in Trumpian capital yep. letters. Okay. 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 Uh, no power company should get a windfall because of a natural disaster. So my last question to you is this. Do you think Mr. Cruz doesn't know that this is how the market's supposed to operate? Or is it just <laughs> politics? <laughs> it, it, it's a good soundbite, but um, our economy is built on people profiting from negative outcomes. And this isn't a bad thing. If more people get cancer, you would want more cancer research to happen, right? So you would want that. If there's more break-ins, you'd want better locks to be designed. You get the <laughs> idea, right? So yeah. our economy it 
is really built on the idea that negative things can happen and we still want to have an economic response to them. So in your example, let's say there was the Texas grid was connected to the rest of the country where there weren't power generation problems and Texas power distributors bought wholesale energy at 50% higher than normal prices from other parts of the grid that were able to scale up production. Those companies would have profited, but it's a deal that everyone involved wants to make. The prices are not ridiculous. They are fair. Ultimately, it's required to generate the electricity in this rapid way. And if the system were, did they profit from a disaster? Yes, they profited from a disaster just like MD Anderson profits from cancer. They profit from it, but not in a way that's, that's negative or malevolent. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. So now the, the, it begs the question here. Uh, I looked the numbers up and the variable rate is allowed to go. So let me give you the numbers I looked at for Texas on average uh, in the winter months, uh, electricity costs about nine or 10 cents a kilowatt hour. If yeah. I'm off by a cent, let's not worry about it. Yeah. Uh, so let's take nine just for arithmetic reasons, nine cents a kilowatt hour. Uh, the regulations allow the price to go up 100 times that to $9. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, I, so, I, so I, I have to ask. It's ridiculous. Is that the way it's supposed to work? Okay. All right. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. This is equivalent to, let's say, I'm sitting here in Amsterdam. And I said, Dad, I would pay you um, 500 bucks if you could be here in five hours. And you would say, that's impossible. And I would say, well, I'll pay you $500,000 to be here in five hours. And you would say, that's impossible. It doesn't matter what the price is. It's not possible to get here. So varying the price is not going to be an effective way to get you out here, right? So allowing it to vary by this much is, re is absolutely poor, a poor example of a market uh, regu regulator a regulatory knob on a market. I would limit that to two or three X because it, you want the, the, the variation to be in the range where the a supply response can happen. If after a 3x increase in price, no more supply is coming, none will come after three, none will come after four, the price will just keep going up. So I'm going to put you in a bit of a spot and quote a fellow economist. I, I'm sorry, I have to oh, do, do it. Do it. Yeah. William Hogan at uh, Harvard uh, Kennedy School, uh, who is believed according to paul krugman is is the, believed to be the architect of the of the system that was put in yeah. okay but let's just take that as a given he said and i'm quoting as you get closer and closer to the bare minimum these prices get higher and higher which is what you want okay so could you comment on that uh, with respect to this nine cents and nine dollars i just said because that's part of the regulation that he had a hand in yeah, it's it's this is why economists get a bad name. This statement is 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 intellectually dishonest and borderline ridiculous, if not just outright ridiculous. So let me let me give you an example. We look at curves, supply response curves. So we look, the price varies 50%. We have a certain supply response typically. Price varies 100%, a certain supply response. Most markets with dynamic pricing, the variation in price is order 2 3x at a certain point. Remember that timing equation, the supply that needs to come online in the time needed is not possible. Let me give you another example. In 2007, Samsung would have done anything in their power for any amount of money to get a smartphone in the market to compete with Apple, right? But they needed three years of research and development. 
The price of a consumer smartphone did not impact their research and development whatsoever. They knew darn well they'll be able to sell a phone for $700. The fact that the price was $1,200 or $1,500 did not affect their time to market. Why? It's just simply not part of the economic equation they face. So this is dishonest. But why is I think it's dishonest? The statement that's true in the range from 1 to 3x is not true in the range from 3x to 100x. So you're sort of taking the part where the statement's true and then kind of fuzzing your way to this ridiculous statement. It's, you should have caps in these markets to the point where you think of supply response as reasonable. That is to say, if you think with a 3x increase in price, every form of electricity generation possible is profitable to distribute. So we could spin up a jet engine from a 737 to produce power like they do sometimes. Every form of supply expansion is now profitable. Once you hit that point, that's it. It's just like that example of coming to the to Amsterdam in five hours. Once I've given you enough money to take a Concorde flight and it's not good enough, however much money I offer you beyond that, it's not going to matter, right? It's because you've already gotten to the point of the maximum supply response. So the maximum supply response so the, in these markets probably happens at two or three X. So the statement is correct on the face of it, but not in the context you're saying. Yeah, it's correct if you look at variations of zero to 100%, but it's right. incorrect if right. you do it zero to 10,000%. And But right. to act like he's not, didn't know that that's how the quote would be used, that's where it's dishonest. Either, either outright dishonest or intellectually dishonest is where we sort of say it's being taken out of context. But I think it's, it's where economists get a bad name because a market, there, for every market in the world, telecom, supermarkets, commodity markets, there's a bad market and a good market. There's a regulated market and a deregulated market. And in the end, all markets are regulated to some degree. This is a regulation in this market, the price cap of 100x. All markets are regulated to some degree, and it's about smart and sensible rules to govern the marketplace. If you have those, you will get good outcomes. If you don't, you will get ridiculous outcomes where a firm might get a thousand X price increase, the consumer gets stuck with the bill, and it's absolutely things not working the right way. But follow me here. Is this a case of deregulation versus regulation? Absolutely not. Because going back to that original question, a regulated, vertically integrated monopolist has to, has to figure it all out, and they might not figure it out. They might not build enough power plants for the demand in their area, and that's exactly what happened in the 40s and 50s. People had rolling blackouts and brownouts because the, the local firm just didn't get it done. So by deregulating and allowing wholesale markets to put energy on the wires from more sources, we got better provision of consumer services. But now we have an example where we haven't regulated this market correctly, and we want to say, well, deregulation's bad. It's absolutely not true. It, everything's regulated. It's not D or non. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And that's a great place to stop unless you have uh, anything anything to add as a summing up. No, that, you know, I think- I we, think you just summed it up. Well, we, <laughs> it, it, exactly. We can dig into this concept further. I think it, it, we have to think of it in this open-minded way. It's about the right rules to do the, the thing you want to do. And it's not deregulation, good or bad. Deregulation, in this case, if you looked at the longer time period in electricity markets in the United States- deregulation has been a fantastic thing. But if you look at California Power Exchange, if you look at this example, when the rules weren't done correctly, firms will exploit them. And consumers generally won't. Back to your question about choice overload. Consumers aren't really going to exploit things the way firms will. And so you have to set the markets up. You know, maybe simple, green, regular, 
premium, whatever it is, just like gas, right? You know, it's got to be something like that. That I think is what makes sense here. That wasn't playing a huge role in this case, but we can get into it in terms of green energy. Simplifying choice might be a bigger, long-run determinant. That's all I had to say. I will remind people to, to subscribe. It's either there or there. And if you're listening on one of our uh, podcast distributions, um, thanks for listening. If you're watching, thanks for watching. And we will see you next week.